Hi, it's Jerry Lee, the co-host of Allergy Talk. We had a very interesting long conversation with Dr. Brian Vickery about peanut oral immunotherapy. So we decided to split the episode in two parts. The first one will be about Brian's own personal history and experiences with this growing field. And part two will be more about the future. So make sure you catch both parts. And thank you so much for supporting our podcast. Okay, let's go get started. Please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today, we're excited to present a special episode of Allergy Talk. The current Allergy Watch issue covers articles from the American Board of Allergy and Immunology Continuous Assessment Program. Therefore, we're going to take a little bit of a break and interview experts in the field of allergy and immunology. If you have a topic you'd like to cover in a future podcast, please let us know at allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. Well, hello everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Marin Kalangara. Hi, um, this is Marin Kalangara. I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory School of Medicine. And for this special episode of Allergy Talk, I'm really excited to introduce my colleague, Dr. Brian Vickery, an associate professor of Emory University and director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Brian, welcome to Allergy Talk. Thanks, Jerry and Marin. It's great to be with you. Before we get started, you mentioned to me that you also listen to a fair amount of podcasts and you told me about like that narrative style. What, what should I be listening to to become a better allergist? Oh, a better allergist. Oh, um, I don't know. I don't listen to medical podcasts. Oh, okay. So what should I be listening to <laughs> that's of interest then? Um, let's see. What am I into these days? Um, you know, Joe Rogan's always good for an interesting interview periodically. I don't listen to all of it, but, mm-hmm. you know, for selected uh, cases. Um, I like Preet Bharara's podcast. Oh, I don't know that one. So Preet Bharara was um, a federal prosecutor. Oh. Right. Um, okay. And I didn't realize he had a podcast. Yeah, he has a great uh-huh. podcast. Um, so he sort of analyzes the news of the day with respect to, you know, um, the legal framework of what's going on in current events. And it's really interesting. He's a smart guy and he has interesting guests. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Oh, with respect to um, medicine and biotech, um, there's a great uh, podcast called Tectonics. Hmm. Um, which uh, recently featured Kari Nadeau. Oh, wow, great. So it's, it's, a, it's about all things biotech, drug mm-hmm. development, um, uh, but it so happens that they uh, interviewed Kari about sort of the unmet need in food allergy, and she tells her life story about how she grew up on a houseboat and uh, all the oh, stuff I didn't know about oh, her. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> okay. that's a great one. Okay, well, I have to definitely check that out. <laughs> all right, so should we get started? Sure, let's get started. Okay, so how'd you become interested in food allergy in the first place? Well, you know, I had no, I didn't even know I was going to be an allergist. Um, I, pr- I, was, I was taken by pediatrics immediately. I knew I wanted to work with kids. Um, but one of my mentors in medical school was a pediatric cardiologist, and that's, that's what I was sure I was going to do. Hmm. Um, I, I got to residency, I, I was sure I was going to be a pediatric cardiologist. And, um, and then as I got into training, 
I really enjoyed the um, critical care unit where there were a lot of kids with cardiac problems, but then also other problems. And I was sure I was going to be an intensivist. Um, but I was training in New York city at the time. And I had the experience in the outpatient clinic that, um, it seemed like, you know, every other patient had asthma. Um, every other patient had atopic dermatitis, um, some combination of allergic diseases. Um, and, you know, of course we're well aware of the inner city epidemic of, of allergic disease. And we had a, um, a part-time allergist um, on staff who was not readily available. So to take care of these patients, I had to teach myself, you know, allergy and asthma. Right. Because of the demand, the need in clinic. Um, and the more I read about it, the more fascinated I got about it. Um, that we don't understand why this is happening and that we um, have treatments of some utility, but there were a lot of what we now refer to as unmet needs or gaps. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was sort of a gradual thing, but um, over time I just sort of realized, like, I think this is how you pick a field. Like I enjoyed reading about it. I enjoyed taking care of those patients. It was, um, it was sort of very stimulating to try to, you know, delve deeper and, and understand a little bit more. And, and as a curious person, you just see all these, all these unknowns. Right. Um, and so a lot of it came out of the fact of just wanting to do better by patients, wanting to be able to answer questions that we can't answer. Um, and that's how I got into allergy. And then, you know, within that, um, food allergy to me is just fascinating because it's so bizarre. Um, the idea that, you know, a bite or two of the wrong food can, can send a healthy person into a life-threatening situation in a few minutes um, because not because the thing that they ingest is particularly bad for them. It's that their immune response just goes haywire um, for reasons that we don't understand and which is in, like incredibly common and getting more common from the point of view of like evolutionary fitness. That makes no sense right. why this would be. Sure. Um, and so I just got profoundly interested in, in this um, as, a, as a cause of anaphylaxis that, that was bizarre. And how about immunotherapy in particular? Well, I guess immunotherapy came from, um, you know, the place of wanting to do better by patients. Um, so my background um, in training was in the lab. So mm -hmm. I was fortunate to work on a, a project in animals trying to better understand how dendritic cells talk to T cells um, in response to peanut allergen and how that might ultimately affect um, the mechanism of a vaccine that was being developed at the time that ultimately did get to phase one trials in humans. Um, but it was a very immersive basic science experience, which I loved. I learned a ton about immunology. Um, I also learned that I had no future as a lab-based investigator um, and always had wanted to work in humans anyway. And right. so I was fortunate to be recruited um, on the basis of that experience and having gotten to know some of the investigators in the field um, by Wesley Burks uh, to Duke, which was my first faculty job. And I mean, Wesley is an amazing, amazing person. I still count him as a mentor to this day. Um, and this was around the time his group was, was really getting deeply involved in immunotherapy. So it was a, a natural opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about those early days of oral immunotherapy. What was the thinking behind that time on how to tackle this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think um, everybody sort of tends to to go back to the 
attempts at subcutaneous immunotherapy with peanut extract in the late 90s um, mm-hmm. and the realization that that was not um, going to be a viable way forward mm-hmm. and, and what else could we do. Um, and I think, you know, Wesley saw the literature of, you know, dating back 100 years of, of patients having been desensitized orally um, and then tried to apply some, you know, some real scientific rigor to that concept. Like, does this really work? Can we really do it? Um, and so did some pilot studies to show that it was feasible and that it seemed that you could desensitize people, um, began to collaborate with um, Stacy Jones and multi-center trials to sort of expand beyond a single center, started to put some control groups in it, recruit, you know, decent sized samples, um, and actually start to show like there seems to be something here. Um, and, you know, obviously has, has led to, you know, where we are now, where we're really on the verge of having potential treatments. But I, I recall that one of that, the holy grails that was out of reach was sustained unresponsiveness. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'd love to tell you to talk a little about that care award study that you did. And, and the whole UNC Duke thing and devil, you have to explain that also. <laughs> yeah. So um, as, a, as a sidebar there, um, you know, I was so fortunate to meet Wesley and for that to lead to a recruitment to come to Duke. I didn't expect that to happen. I mean, it was just career defining in so many ways. And I'm so fortunate. Um, I knew that he would eventually get recruited to be a chairman. He was a division chief at that time. And um you know, obviously was a very distinguished person and I knew that, you know, people would come after him. Um, I never expected that he would get recruited to an institution 10 miles down the road. Um, (laughs) And and that was a, that was an amazing experience to go from Duke to UNC. We, we, we moved, we had about 25 um, protocols at that time um, that were active, you know, involving human participants. Um, And so, and, and, and the, the doses for the projects were being produced in his laboratory. Uh, and these, you know, these are doses that need to be taken every day. So you can't just like shut the lab down for six months. And how do you transition 25 clinical trials from one institution to another and, and maintain the production of the, of the drug. And I mean, it was amazing. Um, the, the, the Duke IRB and the UNC IRB agreed, um, in a memorandum of, of memorandum of understanding, um, that the the Duke IRB would continue to be the IRB of record, even though the trials were happening at UNC. So that provided seamless, you know, ethics coverage to move the trials. But we we packed up the lab and moved it. We packed up all the investigators and moved it. Uh, Twelve folks transferred from one institution to another with him, um, and it was an amazing experience. You can do it. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, that's not your exact question. Um, the study I did, which we can talk about, um, as my, my K23 project was sort of this idea of an early intervention study with, with peanut. Initially I wanted to do egg, um, and Wesley convinced me to do peanut. And at the time we were trying to think about what we would call the study, trying to come up with some sort of catchy acronym. And we were at Duke at the time, which of course is the blue devils. Right. And so... Um, one day I just got a text randomly from Wesley who was like in a meeting and had this idea of how to make an acronym using devil. Um, and he's like, I think I got it. And he sent it to me. <laughs> so that's it. 
So we ended up doing the devil's, we started the devil's study at Duke and then we finished it at UNC. Right. Um, <laughs> but we didn't change the name. Interesting. <laughs> it was, it's, it, you know, it's, I'm a, I grew up in Atlanta. I'm an SEC football fan. I went to Georgia. Like, so I've, I'm, you know, my sense of rivalry is like, you know, Georgia, Florida, which is tomorrow. Um, Auburn, Alabama, that kind of thing. Your mentor made you do it. Uh, let me tell you, Duke UNC is a is a rivalry of a totally different kind. I mean, that is a that is an intense rivalry. <laughs> when when we left, about half of the folks were like, you know, you've sold your soul. What are you doing? Oh Go my to- goodness, <laughs> you sold your soul. Yeah. And the other half were like, you finally seen the light. You know what took you so long? But going back to Jerry's like first question, like where do you think we are right now with sustained unresponsiveness? Yeah. So. I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, I think um, Kari just published this paper in The Lancet um, showing long-term mm-hmm. withdrawal, uh, the so-called POISED trial, um, where even in adults, like there was some residual group that was non-responsive after a very long time of abstinence after treatment. But in general, um, you know, all the studies point the same direction, which is if you stop treatment and you wait long enough, most people become reactive again. There's sort of a, just a, a, a decay of the desensitization effect. We don't really understand the kinetics. Some studies have looked at four weeks after treatment, some you know, 12 weeks after treatment. You can kind of map all this out. And in general, the longer you wait, you know, people mm-hmm. co- become reactive again. Some minority group um, after abstinence is able to come back into the unit you know, four, eight, 12 weeks later and pass a full food challenge, and we call that sustained unresponsiveness, and then we allow them to put some amount of food in their diet. What does that really mean? We don't know. I don't think anybody really thinks that's tolerance. I don't think anybody really thinks those patients are cured. The term remission has been proposed, um, which I think I like a little bit better than sustained unresponsiveness. It sort of implies that the disease is still there. It's just kind of quiet. Quiet, know. And I think that's probably more what it's like. And I think that's sort of important to distinguish, I think, especially with all of these semantics with food allergy, like the difference between desensitization versus sustained unresponsiveness versus tolerance. And yeah. I like I like remission too. And I, yeah. I, ju- I just think it's really important that we're precise about this, especially as we communicate to, to patients and families, mm-hmm. because you know even desensitization, which nobody would ever mistake for like a long-term mm-hmm. tolerance type outcome sure. um, gets reported in the, you know, and shared online or whatever as sort a of a cure, cure for mm-hmm. peanut allergy. And it's clearly not anything close to that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, it's really important that we, we, we sort of have some sort of shared understanding about what these terms are, what they mean, and that we're using them consistently with patients. I think the next step in your career was the AR101 study with AIMUN, where you actually went, left academics and went to industry. I'd love you to talk about that decision. Yeah, so so um, I definitely took a left turn there. Um, I was in Wesley's group. Um, I had NIH funding, was doing the devil study, like was involved, busy group. We were doing really well. Everything was great. Um, I had no, I think sometimes people leave academia and go into industry, you know, sort of out of a sense of restlessness or looking for something else. I, I was like full speed ahead doing what right. I was doing. I got called by a recruiter and um, I initially was like, don't want to talk to you. Everything's fine. They 
called back. And anyway, um, one thing led to another. I was really skeptical about it um, and thought about it for a very long time. Um, and the recruiter was good at her job and she got me to take a phone call, um, which was an interesting phone call. And then then they the, the bigger step was to get me to go take a visit, which I did um, after thinking about it for a very long time. Again, I was very reluctant. We, we come up in this sort of culture that um, going to industry is like, you know, selling out, selling your soul. You're going to the dark side. And people don't do that, you know, when they're proper academics and so on. And so that's the way I was trained to think about it. And I was very skeptical. Um, and then I went and I met with these people. And I, first of all, they impressed me um, with how smart they were, how thoughtful they were about the problem, how committed they were to sort of addressing food allergy in a, in a, in a rigorous way, in a patient friendly, patient-centered way. Like they were thinking about everything the right way, which mm. was very reassuring. They were open to help. There was nobody in the company at the time with any allergy training. Um, so they knew how to get drugs to market and do the trials, but they didn't have any in-house allergy expertise. And they suggested that they were looking for somebody to help them. Um, and you know what ultimately led me to it, the more I thought about it was, um, you know, I got into research as I talked about a little bit before, because of all these gaps in our understanding and trying to do better for patients. Right. And out of a motivation that we tell patients, like, I don't know, I don't know what the right thing to do is, or we don't have any treatments. And so ultimately, my motivation for research is about moving the, the needle for patients. Right. Um, and I realized at the time that, you know, continuing to do small phase two or proof of concept studies was not going to really get us where we needed to go. You know, doing studies with 20, 30, 40 patients in it with a control group or not with a control group, mm -hmm. that's evidence of reproducibility. That's important. But ultimately, that's not how you get something for patients. You need to do large, randomized mm -hmm. controlled trials that are adequately powered to measure the endpoint, you know, ideally using a product that could be scalable. And um, the more I thought about it, I said, well, here's an opportunity to actually do research that would change the needle for patients. And I'm not going to get this opportunity in academia. You, you can't do 500 patient international studies, you know, clinical trials like this generally in academia. And so the more I thought about it that way, it was totally consistent with why I entered research in the first place, even though it was on the industry side of things. Um, and so really it was a scientific decision for me. It was about, doing the kind of research that the field needed um, and, and, you know, um, learning, being, being challenged, doing new things, taking a new opportunity, um, taking a risk. Um, and I'm really glad I did it. I, 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 I initially approached it as a sabbatical. I actually requested the leave of absence paperwork from UNC and I was about, to, I was trying to fill it out and, and do it as a sabbatical and all the parties were okay with that it became clear that a sabbatical wasn't workable. Um, so I did actually leave, but I viewed it as a sabbatical kind of. Um, I kept my academic uh, credentials at UNC. I, I had the same amount of clinic all the way through. I still saw patients every Thursday like I, like I did. That was one of my conditions. Um, I told them I didn't want to move to San Francisco. I wanted to keep my appointment at UNC and still see patients. And um, I didn't want to travel a ton. I didn't want to be a road warrior because I had young kids. Mm -hmm. um, and they were okay with that. Um, so I, I continued my academic practice. I, I still saw patients and interacted with my colleagues. 
Um, and then I, I still did clinical research just in a different way. Um, and you know, um, it was a great experience. Uh, but I think around this time is when peanut oral immunotherapy research became an investigational new drug and not just something that, uh, you know, we just, uh, pick up from the refrigerator. So I, I guess, when did we see that sort of uh, requirement for yeah. research? So, so the, it's a great question. So the precedent was actually set um, in, to, to my knowledge, the precedent was set in 2011. Um, so it was at that time that, that Wesley um, proposed doing a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So the first peanut OIT study that he published that was like kind of the big splashy one was the Stacey Jones paper in 2009 in Jackie. And that was an open-label study. Um, then from that, that you've, you sort of conclude, well, you need to do a proper like RCT with a placebo group. And that study ended up becoming what was published by Pooja Varshney, the, the Varshney mm -hmm. study. Um, so he got, um, NIH funding to do the placebo controlled, uh, trial. It was an R01 that helped support that. And it was around that time with, with federal funding to do a placebo controlled study, um, that, um, various stakeholders began to get involved and say, well, what, what actually is going on here? This looks like you're using a therapeutic drug substance um, to achieve like a, a, a clinical change in patients. Um, and if you look at the statute, uh, it, you know, it pretty clearly meets the definition of, of a drug according to the FDA. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the FDA has food and drug in the name. Mm -hmm. They have a clear rules on um, when is a drug a drug, when is a food a food, when is a food that's used for therapeutic intent a drug, things like you know um, nutritional supplements and other things mm -hmm. that might be considered in different classes. Like they have rules about that. Right. And um, they ruled back then that um, if you use an agricultural food product um, with the intent to treat, prevent, or cure disease, and it has a biological effect on the body, that's our definition of a drug, and it should be subject to IND requirements. And so Wesley had to then learn how to write an IND and get it approved and manufacture a drug in his lab. And at one point, he held five different INDs. Like, he had to develop all this regulatory expertise to manufacture all this stuff. It's really an amazing amount of work. Manufacture? Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, the, the term of art for like taking a bag of starter material, you know, peanut flour and turning it into a dose for a patient um, is, you know, referred to as manufacturing. I mean, it's not really, um, even if not a lot happens to it, and that manufacturing implies that you're sort of changing it in some kind of way. Um, but even if you're just sort of um, aliquoting it out, um, there's, there are a number of steps that have to be done to make sure, for example, it's free of microbial contamination, that there's nothing growing in it, that um, what is in it is what you say it is. So you have to, you have to establish that you know, there's allergenic material in there and that there are major allergens that are measurable and that the amount from lot to lot, from dose to dose, is very consistent. Um, and there are all kinds of standards that you have to agree with, um, agree to with the FDA in partnership to show that the dose, 
ultimately that the patient gets is what you say it is and has what, what's in it what you say it is. And so he had to develop all these methods and the lab does that. They, have a, they actually have a GMP facility. Um, Kari Nadeau has one at Stanford. I think Carla Davis has one in Houston. Other people might have others. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting those are, the, those are the only ones, but there is, there is a set of methods around this um, that lead to the production of a drug-like substance that all of which is codified in the IND. Oh, goodness. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's not as simple as just buying flour and giving it to patients. Because of these regulations mm-hmm. of, of what to do research under an IND. Yeah, because it's, it's again, it, the, the FDA says, look, this, this, you know, it may be derived from peanut, yes, um, but you're using it for the purpose of treating a disease and it has an effect on the body and it, 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 there's a clinical outcome that comes out of that. And that, that is very consistent with our guidance on when, you know, what identifies a drug. And so um, that, that's been the precedent ever since. And I, and I, I happen to agree with it, actually. So then what prompted you to move back to academics? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, um, I really enjoyed my time in industry, and I learned a lot, and I, it, it challenged me a lot. Um, I'm a much better investigator now having done it. I'm, I, I have a much better understanding of how treatments come to market. I'm much better at just leading complex projects and kind of managing a team. Um, but and 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 I think you know it was really an amazing experience, um, because of the amount of focus. Like everybody and, and the and the teamwork. Like everybody's, you have clear goals. Everybody's working together towards those goals, and um, you know you can get a lot done. Um, but you have to be really focused. And um, you know, I began to realize that at my core in my heart I'm an academic you know I have a lot of different interests I have a lot of questions that I'd like to pursue um, and you know that's that's hard to do um, at least at the level that I was um, and you know so that was a big realization is that it was going to limit me in the in the kinds of things that I could pursue right um, and then you know if you're going to do it and you're looking to go up you know, the, the, the career advancement really requires that you be in one of a few places. I mean, you need to be in the Bay Area, Boston, maybe the sort of Philadelphia, Jersey area. Um, there's, you know, there's a pocket in Raleigh-Durham. There's, there's, some, there's some here and there. But for the most part, if you're going to rise up the ranks, you need to be in one of a few places. And um, I just, I, I wasn't committed to that career path. Um, uh, so I had that kind of realization the project was coming to an end. The Palisade project was coming to an end, which was which provided sort of a transition point. Um, and I got this amazing opportunity to come here. And um, you know, I'd be lying if I said that developed overnight. There were a lot of conversations over a long period of time. Um, I had always thought that you know Atlanta was a really interesting place where a lot could be done. There was a clear need. There wasn't a recognizable mm-hmm. sort of food allergy center, um, unlike other big cities that right. had one or more than one. It's all these resources at Emory and at 
Children's and at Georgia Tech and the CDC's around the corner. Um, and so there's a really unique environment here um, where a lot of good is being done in other areas of child health. Um, and I always thought like the, the environment is really rich to, to, to locate a food allergy center. Um, and this is where I grew up. This is where my wife grew up. So there's a real personal element to, to move back home. And I, I mean, I kind of view it really as a, as a mission opportunity. Like this is to the extent that I know how to do something or contribute. It's like around this part. Um, and it's like the idea of moving back home and trying to get this mm-hmm. thing off the ground and right. see what happens was a compelling opportunity for me. And, you know, there's also the part about like, well, we've, we've developed all these treatments and now it's time to treat patients. Right. And, you know, I mean, it was just kind of a, a, a no brainer. Okay. We'll stop right there. And please stay tuned for our next episode where we continue our conversation with Brian Vickery. Again, thank you for all your support. Please rate our podcast on iTunes or any other podcast app that you use and send us feedback, corrections, or suggestions to allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that may be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for TIVA. Dr. Kalangara has nothing to disclose. Dr. Vickery was an advisory board consultant for AIMUNE, Allergenis, FAIR, and Reactive Biosciences, was a site investigator for AIMUNE, DBV, Genentech, and Regeneron, and has received research grants from FAIR and the NIAID.